Shalom, Mishpocha. Welcome to this week's Kadima Talk, Commitment Crucible. Psalms 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to Adonai. Trust in him and he will act. You know, we're in difficult days. I'm not saying anything that you don't already know. All we have to do is look around and see calamity after calamity striking the U.S. We're in dire straits. But to see God act, to see him do something, we must commit all our ways to Adonai. This is a pertinent message and word for us today, not just in the Messianic movement or congregations or in the church today, but in our lives in general. Commitment is key to seeing success in all that we do. And I want to start in John 6, starting in verse 53 today. Then Yeshua said to them, Yes, indeed, I tell you that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That is, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live through the Father, so also whoever eats me will live through me. So this is the bread that has come down from heaven. It's not like the bread the fathers ate. They're dead. But whoever eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things as he was teaching in a synagogue in Kepharnachum in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his Talmudim said, this is a hard word. Who can bear to listen to it? Now, I just preached on this a couple of weeks ago. And this is interesting because the previous chapter to this was a supernatural feeding of some fifteen to 20,000 people with a few loaves of barley bread and a fish and 12 baskets of leftovers uh, were available after all these people were fed, after Yeshua lifted the bread, said the bracha, and they began passing it around. It says every person ate all that he wanted. Here we are the next day, and this is the same group of people that experienced that miracle. What was it? The feeding of the multitudes in the wilderness? Huh? Just like the 40 years wandering in the desert when manna came down out of heaven. And so the same people who experienced this miracle, who partook of the bread, who ate of the fish, who saw 12 baskets of leftovers, now the next day say, hey, show us a miracle to prove who you are. And they begin questioning him about the manna in the 40 years of wandering. So Yeshua was replying to this. He said, hey, man, you know, people ate that bread and they died. I'm the bread of life. And, and they're saying, this is too hard a word. Who, who, can, who can bear to listen to it? But in verse 61, Yeshua, aware that his Talmudim were grumbling about this, said to them, this is a trap for you? Suppose you were to see the Son of Man going back up to where he was before. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Yet some among you do not trust. For Yeshua knew from the outset which ones would not trust him, also which one would betray him. This, he said, is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has made it possible for him. And from this time on, many of his Talmudim turned back and no longer traveled around with him. So Yeshua said to the twelve, don't you want to leave too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the word of eternal life. We have trusted and we know that you are the Holy One of God. See, they couldn't commit. Even though they experienced a miracle, and Yeshua said, if you can't trust that I and the Father are united, trust in the works that I do, because it reveals the supernatural power of God and of heaven. So they couldn't, they couldn't trust the work itself. And it says many turned back to him. They couldn't commit. You know, quite often people associate and base their commitment upon their emotions. 
And if they get that warm, fuzzy feeling, if it's not too hard, if they're not taken out of their comfort zone, if they're not scheduled or if they're not challenged too difficult, their schedules aren't changed and there's lots of joy and happiness, they're ready to follow through with their commitment. True commitment doesn't work that way. Commitment isn't based on emotions. Commitment is a character quality that enables individuals and teams to reach their visions, their goals. Emotions continually sway back and forth, up and down, all the time, while commitment has to be rock-solid, unmovable, unalterable. So often in the Messianic movement and here in the Messianic congregation, we have thousands that come through our doors. If I had a nickel for every person that sat through a teaching and said, oh, we just love the richness and the depth of the Messianic teachings. It just goes right to the root of the word. Oh, we just love the Hebrew, but they don't commit. They want to come here and, and learn these in-depth teachings, but they won't commit themselves to the ways of the Lord. Remember what Psalms 37, 5 says, commit all your ways to the Lord and he will act. And so this is part of the restoration. This commitment's got to be whole scale, the entire word of God, not just the New Testament, not just certain religious doctrines or religious philosophies, not cherry picking scripture, every other verse, but it's a wholesale commitment. We have a term for this in, in the believing realm. It's called being sold out. And being sold out means that everything you do, all that you are, you're committed completely to the word of God, to the kingdom of God, to Yeshua and the Holy Spirit. See, when it's emotional, and unfortunately, a lot of places today are based upon emotion. A lot of worship is emotional. A lot of the services are emotional. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. But there's no challenge. You're not being challenged to commit and to transform yourself to the kingdom of God. Instead, many of those congregations today are transforming to the ways of the world. We call those seeker-sensitive, and people come in because they serve their favorite coffee. They come in because they play their favorite worship song that usually isn't about God but about themselves as individuals. Commitment is a character quality that enables individuals and teams to reach their vision. Emotions will fail. They swing back and forth, but commitment's got to be rock solid. There's three points on commitment that I want to talk about. First, commitment's usually discovered amid adversity. Job 36, verse 15 says, But by means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer, for he gets their attention through adversity. Did you hear that? He, Adonai, gets your attention through adversity. What's happening in our nation right now? Are times good? Is it easy to buy a vehicle? Are our grocery stores completely packed to the top like they used to be 10 or 15 years ago? It, 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 can you travel anywhere you want right now? Can you go to Europe? Can you get on a cruise ship? Oh, by the way, we have a thousand-year drought out in the West right now. We have, we have 28 wildfires burning in the West right now. It's calamity after calamity. Do you think the Lord's trying to get our attention? <laughs> I would say, are you having personal issues in your own life right now? Could it be that the Lord's trying to speak to you, but we're so consumed with the things of the world, we're so consumed with Hollywood, with social media, and, and all the other distractions, six or 700 cable channels and 24-hour streaming? Could it be the Lord's trying to get our attention and we're not listening? Commitment's usually discovered amid adversity. Number two, commitment does not depend on gifts or abilities. Philemon 1, verses 5 and 6, For I'm hearing about your love and commitment to the Lord Yeshua and to all God's people. Verse 6, I pray that the fellowship based on your commitment will produce full understanding of every good thing that is ours in union with the Messiah. You know, I want to think about this. If you're a business owner 
If you've got your own business, if you've got a construction company, if you've got a store, if you're selling products, uh, you know, if you only answer emails every three days, if only two days of the week you get up early to go into work and the other three days you don't work at all, you stay at home. If you're not committed wholeheartedly to that business, that business will fail. You, you've got to be all in. In fact, most successful business owners would tell you that they're working six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. It, it takes great commitment and sacrifice to be successful in all that you do, whether it's in the kingdom or whether it's a business that you're doing for yourself to support your family, but you've got to be committed. you got to be committed. Number three, commitment comes as a result of choice, not conditions. Joshua 24, verse 15, if it seems bad to you to serve Adonai, then choose today whom you're going to serve. Will it be the gods your ancestors served beyond the river or the gods of the Amori in whose land you're living? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Serving God is commitment. It reminds me of Ruth. Ruth chose to commit herself to Naomi, to the Jewish people. She said, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you go, I shall go till death do us part. That's whole-scale commitment. In fact, that reveals the Gentile commitment to the Messianic Jewish community, not the other way around. It's a very profound statement. And in that, produces a child when she eventually marries a Jewish man, Boaz, uh, who is the what? Yeah, Ruth, the great-grandmother of David. Huh. See what commitment gets? Number four, commitment lasts when it's based on values. Values are a common set of ideas and morals practiced to promote the sound functioning of either a family or a congregation, in order to strengthen the fabric of society. Can I say that again? Because we have a lack of values in our nation today. Values are a common set of ideals and morals practiced to promote the sound functioning of families and congregations in order to strengthen the fabric of society. So when we have values being erased, when we have anarchy ruling at our nation, the, the weave of our society, the fabric begins to unravel, and, and we see a nation lose its status in the world. God's values give us everything we need, which build upon the garner fruit. Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, God's power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing the one who has called us his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us valuable and superlatively great promises, so that through them you might come to share in God's nature and escape the corruption which evil desires have brought into the world. For this very reason, try your hardest to furnish your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, and perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah." Commitment is the first step in trusting God. Commitment produces fruit. John 15 says those in the kingdom who don't produce fruit are what? Yeah, they're cut off. You know, there is a time when Yeshua wouldn't commit because of wayward motivations. In John 2, starting at verse 23, now while Yeshua was in Jerusalem at the Pesach festival, there were many people who believed in his name when they saw the miracles were performed, but he did not commit himself to them for he knew what people are like. That is, he didn't need anyone to inform him about a person because he knew what was in the person's heart. Ken Blanchard in his book, The Minute Manager, says, there's a difference between being interested and committed. When you're interested in doing something, you only do it when it's convenient. When you're committed to something, you accept no excuses. God doesn't equip those who are interested. He equips those who are committed. 
Commitment is how we overcome our problems and opposition. A major roadblock in our biblical expression of worship as Messianic believers. But it, this isn't limited to the Messianic movement. And I, I shared this in the beginning. The hardest thing we have in the Messianic realm is getting people committed to, to stay the course, to attend services on a regular basis, to tithe, to donate their, their talents, and, and build the congregation to what God wants it to be. People won't commit. And, you know, this, is, this isn't relegated to us. We see this in society as well. You know, just 50 years ago, the average person worked for three corporations their entire life. Now, today, by the age of 35, most young people have worked between 18 to 20 different places of employment. There's no commitment. We see it in our divorce rate, which is over 50%. No commitment. We see it all throughout our nation. And every you can't get people to work. People won't commit to a job. You can't get nurses to commit to the hospital. You can't get doctors to commit to a practice. It's, it's in, endemic to our society today. But yet commitment is how we overcome our problems and opposition. This It's a major roadblock in our biblical expression of worship, again, as Messianic believers, because people won't commit. Anytime someone takes a stand for justice and truth, anytime someone stands to move to change their surroundings for the good, to stand for truth and justice, there will be pushback and opposition. But commitment is how we overcome this opposition. It's how we overcome this pushback. And the key to this is found in Nehemiah, one of my favorite books, because Nehemiah exemplifies a true biblical leader. And I often uh, resource back to this because he exemplifies what we need to be in our world today. One of the greatest tests of leadership is how you handle pushback and opposition. Nehemiah faced the usual tactics of the opposition, and, and I want to go through some of these. When he comes back, the, the first thing he does is in Nehemiah 1 is he's in captivity. He was in Babylon, which then had become Persia, and some of his brothers from Judea had come from Jerusalem, and he inquired of them. So first and foremost, we, we have to want to care. There has to be compassion for our world around us. And so he inquires, how is it in Jerusalem? And he receives a very sobering, horrible report, which really grieves him. And he begins praying and interceding with the Lord, and it gives him boldness to go before the king. And the king never saw him with a sad face before. Now, mind you, uh, he could have been thrown in jail or uh, beheaded for frowning before the king. But with great boldness, he does this, and the king allows him to go back. He provisions him. He gives him letters, gives him everything he need to begin restoring Jerusalem and the walls. But as soon as he does this, see, when nobody's doing anything, nobody cares. So as long as the world goes to pot around you and you don't involve yourself, nobody cares. But the minute you stand up for truth and justice, the minute you say, wait a minute, the buck stops here. This is unacceptable. You will get a flurry of pushback and opposition, and you'll face fury and ridicule, as Nehemiah did in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But when Sanvalot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious. He was greatly enraged. He ridiculed the Judeans. Before his kinsmen in the army of Shamron, he said, what are these pathetic Judeans doing? Are they going to rebuild anything they want? Are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish today? Are they going to recover useful stones from the piles of rubble, burned rubble at that? And Tovaya the Ammoni, was with him, and he said, whatever they're building, why, even if a fox went up on it, he'd knock their stone wall down. You know, this brought me to think, why do people do this? Why do people criticize? Why do they ridicule? Why do they do this? Well, there's a few interesting points here of why people do this. Some people do it because they feel threatened by leadership qualities and use criticism as a weapon to try to balance the game. 
and practice these people, they have a, a strong inferiority complex. And they then try to attack your weaknesses or try to take you down to their level. See, they're, they're uncomfortable by this. And sometimes strong leaders are, are, are ridiculed and said to be arrogant, but people confuse confidence with arrogance. There's two different things, commitment, confidence, and pride, two different things. And so when they feel threatened, they begin to criticize and ridicule. Another reason is they like to feel responsible for the situation in every moment and get scared when they feel that they're losing control. Do you remember just a little over a year ago when you couldn't find toilet paper and paper towel in any of the stores? What in the world does this have to do with the COVID pandemic? Because people want areas in their lives that they control. And if not, they feel that they're losing control. And when they do so, in these cases, criticizing you returns to them, at least in part, the feeling of control because they believe tearing you down is a way that they can take back control. Number three, they want to gain something. In this case, it's likely they criticize you in front of someone else. Remember that he did this before all the Judeans to make sure they look better, both at work and with friends. In this case, they do it because they consider you a rival or a competitor. See, so, so all these things I want you to ponder because every one of you listening have faced this criticism, this ridicule, this pushback, and it, and it tends to make you draw inward to say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore, but it's just the opposite. It should encourage you and empower you. Listen, if a, if a Pharisee's not upset with you, you're not doing your job. You're always going to have ridicule, but it's important to know why this is because they, they think you're a rival. They, they view you as a competitor. Next, they think that only their views are valid. Then criticize you when you dare to suggest something different. See, Sanvalot was okay as long as the city lay in rubble. But the minute someone acquired, the minute somebody cared, the minute somebody had compassion and zeal and a desire to restore the things of God, oh, now all of a sudden all this criticism comes and all this ridicule. And they do this, it's often considered a personal attack because deep down these people are often, again, very insecure. It is personal with them. And they think only their views are valid and criticize you when you desire to do something for the good of the community. Number five, they seek admiration and approval. In fact, when people think they're an expert in every field, they often criticize others to demonstrate what they know and reaffirm their position looking for admiration. See, Sanvalad and Tovai, they were trying to elevate themselves in the community as leaders when they weren't. Number six, they're projecting their own fears and insecurities. In fact, when people do not accept their features and recognize them in the others, they generate in them a deep rejection and open the way to criticism. Number seven, they need to feel powerful, even if it means passing over you, even if it means ridiculing you. To achieve this, they use criticism, ridicule as a stick with which they hit you and try to knock you down. And lastly, they envy or admire you, but do not manage to express those emotions properly. So they end up criticizing exactly those qualities you're exhibiting. The next thing that came against uh, Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 4 is a strong resistance to change. Verse 7 and 8 of Nehemiah 4, But when Sanvalat, Toviah, the Arabs, the Ammonim, and the Ashdodim heard that the repairs in the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and the breaks were being filled in, they became very angry. This is the second time we've read this. They became angry. They're furious. Verse 8, All of them together plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and thus throw us into confusion. See, here's the deal. You're not called to live a static life. Rather, we're commanded to bend to God's will, which requires daily change. The kingdom of God is forever moving, and we need to move in it. Because the minute you become static, the minute you plateau, the minute you stop moving forward, you're, no, you're, you're backing out of the presence of God. 
We can't live a static life. Daily change results in personal growth with the Lord. Responding to God involves change so that we may go where he is leading us, whether that's in ministry, whether that's in business, whether that's in a new job, vacation, whatever that is. The Bible is a progressive book that is continually unfolding before us. The word is the same today as it was yesterday as it will be tomorrow. Our word is the only book, the only oracles that contain the prophetic words of God that have taken place, are taking place, and will take place in the future. It's always unfolding before us. To remain intimate with God and not become stagnant requires us to constantly change and seek him at the next level. Sanvalat Tobias were unwilling to change. They'd become stagnant. And so why do so many resist change? Well, number one, many lack the motivation, desire, or the will to change. It takes energy to do this. It means we have to be actively engaged in and transforming ourselves in alignment with the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 4.14 says, I am not writing you this to make you feel ashamed, but as my dear children to confront you and get you to change. In fact, that's the entire purpose of the Messianic movement is to restore truth, to bring restoration back to the greater body of Messiah. And, and we're, we're doing this not to make Christians feel ashamed or make people feel like they're pagans, but to confront people and get them to change, to come back to the whole word of God, to not be an apostasy. Harold Wilson said, he who rejects change is the architect of decay. The only human institution which rejects progress is the cemetery. Hmm. Number two, people desire to change, but they can't let go of the past or the familiar. You know, I, I remember having this conversation with my father. Uh, he just turned 98 years old. And uh, and so I, I like to talk with him and hear about way life used to be, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And so, uh, you know, I asked him once, you know, uh, you know, life appeared to be much more simpler back in the 20s and the 30s. They, they were still farming with uh, horses and a plow. And, and my father said this, he farmed the same way people farmed 5,000 years ago. Instead of a wood plow, it was a steel tip plow, but the method was the same. And so I said, you know, one time I said, well, you kind of miss those, those good old days. And he said, uh, you know, good old days. He said, you mean like when you got an impacted tooth and the infection killed you? Like when you got an earache and the infection killed you? I'm like, wait, what? And my father lived before there was antibiotics. My father lived before there were vaccinations. When, uh, you know, scarlet fever would kill, when cholera outbreaks happened, when people died from smallpox, things we take for, we don't even think about that. It's not even on our radar. Yet, uh, you know, 60% of children never made it uh, to adulthood. They died in childbirth from all these maladies that today uh, we've got drugs, we've got vaccines for, we've got antibiotics. We don't even think twice about this. And so we got to be careful not getting stuck in the old ways and wishing for the old days because that's old manna. That's yesterday. They're gone. We want the fresh manna every day from heaven. And to do so requires us to change and seek it out. Number two, they desire to change, but can't let go of the past. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, stop dwelling on past events and brooding over times gone by, the Lord says. I'm doing something new. It's springing up. Can't you see it? I'm making a road in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. The Lord is doing something new today. And, uh, you know, in this post-COVID uh, mix we have, people say, oh, I wanted to go back to the way it was pre-COVID. It will never go back to those days. Those days, there were past events. There are times gone by. It will ne 2019 will never exist in our lives again today. We're forever changed, and we keep changing. In fact, John F. Kennedy, president, said change is the law of life. 
and those who look only to the past or present are certain to miss the future. Now, number three, they are not intimate with God, therefore estranged from his wills and desires, so they don't change because they don't know what God's will is. Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12 says, at that time, many will be trapped. You get this trapped into betraying and hating each other. What's happening back in Nehemiah 4? Sanvalat and Tobiah, they're, they're trapped into betraying and hating their own people, their neighbors, their friends, the, the Judeans, and, and they're rabble-rousing. Verse 11 in Matthew 24, many false prophets will appear and fool many people. Number two, uh, Verse 12 of Matthew 24, and many people's love will grow cold because of increased distance from Torah. They're not intimate with God. They're estranged from his word, his will, and his kingdom. Thereby, they cannot change. Number four, people fight change because it affects them personally. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 15, but don't consider him an enemy. On the contrary, confront him as a brother and try to help him change. People get stuck in the same old ruts. They're doing the same old thing, dancing around the same old mountain, caught up into the same old temptations, but we need to help them change and transform to the kingdom of God. Change must be understood from the kingdom perspective. God declares that he is the potter, we are the clay, and we must be willing to change at the potter's hands. Isaiah 64, verse 8, but now I deny you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hands. He determines who and what we are, not us. Next, what did uh, Nehemiah face? Rumors. Nehemiah 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, our enemies are saying they won't know or see anything until we've already infiltrated them and begun killing them and stopping the work. Verse 12, and even when the Judeans living near them came and must have said to us 10 times from every place, you must come back to us. Rumors, gossip is an attempt to elevate self. It's enticing to verbally knock someone down and instantaneously feel better about ourselves. We feel vindicated even. We think we can bypass a difficult struggle in earning genuine self-esteem and brotherly love by overcoming our own character flaws through rumors and gossip. The cancer of rumors, gossip, and slandering seeks to destroy the word of Adonai, and it's infected the greater body of believers today and the general American society. Paul warned of this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. He said, Moreover, understand this. In the Akhret Hayamim, in that day, in that time and season to come, We'll come trying times. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe we're living in trying times today. Verse 2 says people will be self-loving, money-loving, proud, arrogant, insulting, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Now get this, slanderous. In the Greek, this is diablos, which means to make false and defamatory statements, rumors, prone to slander, slanderous, accusing falsely, a calumniator, false accuser, Uncontrolled, it goes on to say, brutal, hateful of good. So this slanderous, this word is diabolic. It can also mean uh, the devil. And so we see the devil is a source of all lies, all slander, all rumors, uh, you know, all false accusations. So it says in that time, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uncontrolled, brutal, hateful of good. Verse 4, traitors, headstrong, swollen with conceit, loving pleasure rather than God. As they retain the outer form of religion but deny its power, stay away from these people. For some of them worm their way into homes and get control of weak-willed women who are heaped with sins and swayed by various impulses who are always learning but never able to come to full knowledge of the truth. Men will be diablos, spreading malicious rumors, gossip, and slander. Men and women will destroy each other through rumors, false words, and gossip. And this is exactly what Sambalat and Tobias were trying to do to 
destroy the work of God and get Judah and the Judeans fighting each other and stopping the mighty work of God. Nehemiah, on the other hand, he modeled the right response to all of these challenges. He, number one, relied on God. In Nehemiah 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Our God, listen, we're being treated with contempt. Turn back their jeers on their own heads. Give them over to be plundered in a land of exile. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be wiped out from before you because you had, because they have insulted the builders to their face. So they, he relied on God. He praised to God. He takes these issues to the throne room and says, God, we're being treated with contempt. Do something about this. Put it back on their own heads. Don't cover their own guilt. Don't let their sin be wiped out from before you because they have insulted the builders to their faith. The builders of what? God's house, of God's holy city. So Nehemiah had a concept of, of the godly, supernatural kingdom work he was doing. But yet, number two, he didn't ignore or discount the opposition. In Nehemiah 4, verse 9, he says, However, we prayed to our God, and because of them, organized a watch against them day and night. So listen, you know, they didn't put their head in the sand or pretend that threat wasn't real. They took it to God, said, God, you know, we're praying, we're lifting this up to you, but it also takes action on our part. So because of them, because of these threats, they organized a watch against them day and night. He put a force together to protect them. Number three, he took note of and reinforced his weak areas. Nehemiah 4, verse 13, So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed men according to their families with their swords, spears, and bows. Listen, in all that you do, it's critical to know and be aware of both your strengths and your weaknesses. Because the enemy will not come at you frontal assault in your strong area. He's going to come around behind in your weak areas. And this is where your flanks need to be protected by staff, by family members, by prayer, by fasting, by petitions to the Lord Most High God. And we stand together as one, unified in the kingdom of God. Next, Nehemiah addressed the issue and reassured the people. In Nehemiah 4, verse 14, after inspecting them, he stood up and addressed the nobles, leaders, and the rest of the people. He said, don't be afraid of them. Remember Adonai, who was great and fearful, and fight for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. So he, he didn't ignore the issue. And see, this is a problem today we have in the greater body of Messiah. In the last year, year and a half, we have a lot of preachers. We have a lot of uh, churches, congregations. We have a lot of Messianic synagogues, rabbis who aren't relevant, who aren't speaking to the topics that's facing the, the greater nation, the individuals, the congregations. Nehemiah went right to it. He addressed the issue, and he reassured the people, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid of them. Remember who we serve, greater than those who are accusing us. Number four, he never gave up despite opposition and the dangers lurking around him. In Nehemiah 4, verse 15, when our enemies heard that the plot was known to us, God had foiled their plans. We all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. He never gave up. See, 90% of people will stop whatever they're doing when they're within 10% of the goal. That's staggering. Keep moving. Kadima, that's the name of this talk. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't give up. Keep pressing in. Number five, he used wisdom and force to carry out Adonai's will. Nehemiah 4, verses 16 through 23 is they continued building the wall. Let me say that again. They continued building the wall. They just didn't submit to the ridicule, to the contempt, to the fury, to the anger, to the threats, to the terrorism. They continued building the wall. And those who carried loads held their loads with one hand and carried a weapon in the other. I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite passages today. Uh, it, these are people of God carrying out the will of God, doing his work upon this earth with 
the work in one hand and a Glock in the other. Verse 18 is for the construction workers. Each one had a sword sheathed at his side. That is how they built. The man to sound the alarm on the shofar stayed with me. And I said to the nobles in verse 19, the leaders and the rest of the people, this is a great work and it is spread out. We are separated in the wall, one far from another. But wherever you are, when you hear the sound of the shofar, come to that place, come to us. Our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work. Half of them held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. Also at that time, I told the people that everyone with a servant stay the night within Yerushalayim so that at night they can be a guard for us, even as they work during the day. Verse 23, I, my kinsmen, my servants, and my bodyguards never took off our clothes, and everyone who went to get water took his weapon. Persistence is the ultimate gauge of our leadership. The secret is to outlast your critics. The secret is to outlast the ridicule. The secret is to outlast the pushback and stand for truth and justice and do what God has called you to do. Nehemiah taught this by staying committed to his ultimate calling. He never grew weary. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, So let us not grow weary of doing what is good. For if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Don't grow weary of doing what is good. From John Maxwell, make a difference. He said, if you want to be significant and live a life that matters, you must add value to others. People who live intentionally make it their everyday goal to add value to people using their best gifts, skills, and resources. It's part of their purpose. There are five essential values of adding value to others. Number one, to add value to others, I must first value myself. Number two, to add value to others, I must value others. Number three, to add value to others, I must value what others have done for me. Number four, to add value to others, I must know and relate to what others value. Number five, to add value to others, I must make myself more valuable. Nehemiah exhibited every one of these five traits. He knew how to invest in people. He knew how to relate to them and how to communicate with them and how to be persistent and stand for the truth. Everyone has qualities, talents, and skills that have the potential to add values to others. I believe success is within reach for just about everybody. The greater impact you wish to make, the greater your influence needs to be. Mishpachah, stay committed. Stay the course. Don't grow weary. And you will see Adonai act on your behalf. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.